Amen as well. Thank you. I'm the aforementioned uh, Dave Mitchell, and it's good to be with you this morning. And today is a special day. There's a special event that's occurring today. What makes today, what's that special event? What's so good, uh, that event, right, today? Groundhog Day. Well, that's one. You didn't know that event until Davis said that. Why is today, what's the special event for today? Super Bowl. Okay. I want you to rethink that in just a moment here. I'd like to go to a videotape. Some of you might remember Mark Driscoll. He's got a church up there, Mars Hill, sort of well-known in the uh, America of churches. And uh, he had an interview. Uh, He's in Seattle. His church is in Seattle. So he has a very biased point of view as to who should win the Super Bowl today. But he interviewed some of the players from the Seahawks. I'd like for you to hear their response to his questions. Let's take a look. All right, Pastor Mark here with the, uh, the members of the greatest football team on the earth, uh, the Seattle Seahawks, and very, very glad to let you guys share a little bit about your background, your story, your history, what Jesus has done in your life. Quick answers. I'll give you guys a couple questions and just give me quick answers. Let's start with Russell. Um, um, who's Jesus? Uh, who is Jesus? Uh, Jesus is everything. And the great thing about Jesus is he'll meet you right where you're at. You know, and it's free. You don't have to earn it. You, you don't have to work for it. He gives it to us because he loves us and he's full of grace. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the beginning and end of everything. And, um, you know, in, in my life, you know, to understand the where we've reached, you know, which is, quote unquote, in the world's view, the pinnacle, um, you really see how empty that is. And, um, having Jesus in my life, you know, you really see how important that is because you see that he is everything. I mean, to take Jesus who is perfect and to be so humble as to come to earth as a mere man, uh, and to live the life that he lived, uh, despite knowing my sin to go to on the cross and to die for, for my sin and our sin and, and everyone's sin. Um, to me, I mean, that's everything, you know, that's, that's joy, that's peace, that's love to think that him and his perfection, uh, would do that despite knowing, uh, the really the, the depths of who I am. Jesus is love. You know, at the end of the day, we're all looking for, for something by somebody to comfort us, for somebody to be there for us at all times, for somebody when we're, we're in the worst times of our lives, when we're battling with something, with struggles, whatever it may be. You know, when, when we're at our highest point too as well, when things are going really well, we want somebody to comfort us and be there for us and say, great, you know, you know, well done, you know, and, and, and that's Jesus. Jesus has always been there. He'll, he'll never, never leave you, never forsake you. Literally, Jesus is the greatest treasure in the universe. And it's, it's, it just makes sense. It's not like you give up your life and then you get something worse. You know, it's like Jesus is, for all of us, you give the that. worst and get the best. That's <laughs> no question. You know, he gave us everything. We had nothing. He gave us everything. So literally, it, it's just one plus one equals two. It's just that simple. You know, Jesus is better than anything that we could ever hope. Even better than a Super Bowl, better than an NFL career. Is the any NFL coach supposed to say that? That anything is better than the Super Bowl? Don't Jesus, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, I don't know. Edit yeah, that out. You know, any, I think some of us here, all of us here would like to say, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But if we ever have to win the Super Bowl, to be able to tell everyone that no, Jesus is still better, because as yeah. much as as much as we worship this thing called a ring and championship, although we like to have one for sure, I, I just can't wait to tell people if that happens. God willing, we'll be able to tell people, yeah, Jesus is way better still, because you're gonna wake up the next day, it's, things are gonna be the same if you don't have Jesus. If you have Jesus, it's still gonna be awesome, win or lose. So, 
All right, that good. So, what's the most important thing about today? Jesus. Jesus. All right, all right. And uh, so, who would be probably more prone to talk about Jesus if they won the Super Bowl? These guys or uh, who's playing? Uh, uh, the Broncos. <laughs> so, that should give you a little clue as to who you should cheer on, right? You want Jesus to be proclaimed. Not the man upstairs or something like that, or just pointing like that or something like that. Anyways, thank you for indulging me for that moment. Romans chapter 5 is all about Jesus. We're going to be all about Jesus today. It's all about what Jesus came to do for us. Jesus came into this world for one primary thing, and that was to justify us, to, to bring justification to our lives. I know there's a lot of needs we have. We want better marriages. We want better jobs. We want better bosses, better employees. We want better neighbors. We wish these people would not drive me nuts anymore. And these problem children. And marriages need to be healed. And, and we've got a lot of things going on that surround us. And we, we have a lot of reasons to have concern and prayers and, and burdens we carry. Those are all things God certainly cares about. But I'm here in the book of Romans, and we are here to learn that there was one primary reason for Jesus Christ to come in this world. And it wasn't to fix every marriage, although that can happen. It wasn't to heal everybody, although that can happen. It wasn't to repair every relationship, although that can happen. Jesus came into this world to justify us, to declare us righteous. Justification is a legal term to declare someone righteous. And so Jesus came to do that. Romans 5 is all about justification. We're going to dig into this. It's kind of a a tough road to go down. It's not filled with a lot of fluff. It's just pure meat, tenderized meat from God. In Romans chapter 5, we're going to look at, as you have an outline there, you'll find it a whole lot easier to listen to me up here if you have that outline before you. But what we're going to look at in Romans 5, 1 through 5, first of all, is this. A realistic look at a righteous person's life. This is a realistic look at the righteous person's life. When God justifies us, makes us righteous, these things happen. Let me read 1 through 5. <coughs> Therefore, having been justified by faith. You know, remember Romans 4 was all about faith. Now it's all about God's work. Romans 4 is about us. Romans 5 about God. We've been justified by faith, and I would add alone, in Jesus alone. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace, in which we stand and we exult, we rejoice, in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And just to stop it there, we'll pick it up from there in a moment. But I see God revealing to us the important thing as to why in the world Jesus came here for us so that we could live a righteous life. The righteous life places us, first of all, in a position and then puts us on a journey. The position is described for us here in these three qualities. That number one in verse one, he says, we have peace with God through our uh, Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to make us be in a relationship 
of peace with God. There's a number of words that Romans 5 describes for you and me outside of Jesus. And it's hard for us to look at good people in this way, but God declares those that have not been justified as his enemies, Romans 5. He calls us ungodly. He calls us sinners. Uh, He calls us helpless. Those are terms for outside of Jesus. But when Jesus is the Savior of my sin to remove it, to give me his righteousness, he then places me in a position of peace. I am no longer his enemy. I am at peace with God. Now, that should manifest itself in peaceful relationships outside, but it doesn't guarantee it. Because just because I have peace with God, it doesn't mean my neighbor has peace with God. It doesn't mean my boss has peace with God. But when I have peace with God, there is a journey that I go in that I stand in a position where I am at peace and He is no longer under, I am no longer under His wrath. I am no longer ungodly. I am no longer a sinner. I am no longer helpless. I have a relationship of peace. So it's a position. Now it means something as we go down this. Secondly, when Jesus Christ justifies us and declares us righteous, it says, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Jesus introduces me to the sphere of God's grace. That's what he's, he's like he, a doorman, if you will, not to trite, make him more trite than I should be, but he is a doorman who is my intercessor who says, I want to bring you into my Father's world of grace. You need lots of grace, Dave. We all need God's grace in big ways, small. Here's just a small illustration of it. This last week I had an appointment with someone off campus down at uh, Irvine Spectrum. And so I'm sitting there, and then suddenly a text message comes on my phone. I pick it up, and I looked at it, and he says, hey, it was was eight minutes after 4 o'clock. He says, are you coming? I looked at it and I thought for a moment, oh my goodness, I completely forgot about that. So I quickly texted back, not that I had forgotten because I didn't want to look totally foolish, although I was. I said, can you wait 15 minutes? I'll be there. And so he said, absolutely. So I went there and I, of course, apologized. I said, it's so disrespectful of me. I'm so sorry. I don't know how he blew that. I guess, you know, just completely messed up. It's been just kind of this, that, the other day and so forth. And so I had all kinds of spin job excuses and all that kind of stuff. But I apologized to him, and he said to me, You know what? I'm a man who needs a lot of grace. And so who, who like me, should not give to you the same grace? We need to live in the grace of God. And it's just a small illustration that when you and I mess up, blunder, fallacies, make mistakes... We will think things we shouldn't think. We will do things we shouldn't do. We'll say things we shouldn't say. We'll have regrets. We'll have painful hurts that we'll commit to other people. We'll do things like that. That's part of what it entails in a righteous person's life. And I need to know that when I am messing up before God, I still have peace with Him and that He is a God that looks at me and says, Dave, you're in my sphere of grace. And I look at your fallacies, your frailties, your weaknesses. I look at them in a sphere of grace. I don't come and judge you. I don't condemn you. Now, we should grow. We shouldn't be late for appointments. We shouldn't be messing up. We should grow in that. But God says, this is how I respond to you now. Because Jesus has justified you, and he's placed you into my righteousness. And now he introduced you into 
my grace. Live there comfortably. So we live in the grace of God. And then thirdly, it says here as we go on to read, he says, in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God, that Jesus brings us to a point where we have hope in His glory. Now, we don't have a lot of glory down here. There is a glory that is awaiting us. I just want to lead us to that. He says in Romans 8, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also are we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. And some of you may have woken up this morning when you get out of bed. How many of you groaned when you got out of bed? Any groaners? Uh, well, I groaned when I got out of bed. <clears throat> Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. One of the things that Paul is teaching us is that even our position of justification, declared righteous, our salvation is not complete. And it's not complete in the body. So there are going to be days of groaning. Now that leads me to the point that Paul is talking about here, the hope of the glory of God. That even when we groan, when we have weaknesses and pain and sorrow and sadness, even in those groaning moments, there's glory yet to be given to us. Because Paul said in Philippians, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also uh, we eagerly wait for the Savior. Notice again, we eagerly await. We eagerly await the redemption of the body. We eagerly await the coming of Jesus Christ who would transform the body, this body, this shell, this rental uh, of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of power that He is even to subject all things to Himself. Our bodies will be the completion of the salvation when we have Christ return to take us into heaven and only justified people have that glorious hope. Only those that God has declared righteous will receive the fullness of the redemption of the body to conform it to the glory of Jesus. That is a glorious outcome, and that won't change. No matter what we go through, as we'll see. So that's the position. Our position before God is that you and I who are declared righteous right now, we have peace with God. It doesn't matter what's going on around us. We have peace with God. We have a relationship that is in a sphere of grace where His grace is watching over us. When I ride my motorcycle all over the Ortega Highway, over to Lake Elsinore, and you're going through those whiny curves and you got the crotch rocket guy flying by me over the double yellow line, and you got the other people coming this way and they're not watching where they're going, they're going too fast. I want to know that I'm living in the sphere of God's grace. I don't want to be outside of His grace. I don't want to take the risks that this life already presents to us if I'm not in the grace of God where His fear is covering me. I need to live there because I am such a frail person when it comes to measuring up to all that He has for us. And then finally, He's going to bring us to that point where I have the glorious hope of the conformity to the body of Jesus Christ, fully transformed and redeemed and set free from this life into His life justification positions us there. And then there is a journey that God takes us on. In verses 3 through 5 is this journey. That was the position. Here is the journey. Verse 3. Not only this, but we also exult. Again, the word exult sometimes gets confused with exalt. It's not exalt. It's exult, which means to rejoice. It's a word that means joy or rejoicing. 
What do we have joy or rejoicing in? Well, tribulations. Knowing that tribulations bring us about perseverance and perseverance proven character. Proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. <coughs> Excuse me, my body is, is groaning. My sinuses are groaning. I've had for seven days uh, a sinus infection. And the viruses are actually building a condominium in there so they can invite their friends in. But they said they have low HOA fees, so it's okay. So if I cough, I'll try to cover this up and not uh, annoy you too much. Hope does not disappoint because the, (coughs) the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Here's the journey. When you and I are declared righteous, it doesn't become a sweet and easy life where everything just falls together. And I get the job of my choice. I get into the school that I would love to go to. I get the grades that I wish that I had. I get the spouse that is the dream spouse that I've always wanted. And in 50 years, she or he are still the spouse that I would have wanted, you know, the children. And I get a perfect number of two and a half kids. And it's just great, just perfect. We don't necessarily get that in the righteous journey. Here is the journey and God is right up front. He didn't pull any punches. He didn't sugarcoat it. No spin job here. If you want to be declared righteous, get ready for this. Number one, it's going to be a lot of joy. Not happiness, but joy. This peaceful, joyful existence where? In this journey. It's a clear purpose that when the journey gets hard, this is what God's going to do. And this is the key line. <clears throat> We know tribulations bring perseverance, which results in proven character, which leads to hope that does not disappoint. That's the journey. It's interesting. He's talking about righteousness. He wants the Romans to be followers of Jesus. He wants other people who are not followers of Jesus to become followers of Jesus. He wants us to be able to reach out in a way that, uh, like the, the Seahawks, you know, I just want to proclaim Jesus and what a great Lord and Savior He is. And then Paul says, by the way, the first thing that you should expect in your life of righteousness is tribulations. Tribulations. The word tribulations is a Greek word that means to literally to to squeeze. It's used of grapes that are being squeezed for the juice. It's used of an orange that is being squeezed for the orange juice. It's used of Jesus when he was traveling in, in one of the Gospels as the crowd squeezed in upon him. It was that same term, to squeeze upon him. And some of the values that we are trying to hold on to, the traditions of our faith that we believe in so powerfully, are being squeezed squeezed on our souls as we try to proclaim and then maintain them. We are literally being squeezed in some legal ways, squeezed in cultural ways. We're being squeezed by our friends by not uh, sort of going with the flow of the new thought and values of society. And there are people in Iran and Sudan who are physically being squeezed with physical persecution because they have chosen to be followers of Jesus. And so God says... The righteous journey often includes tribulation where there is pressure and stress and squeezed values, which leads to perseverance. Perseverance is that ability to say patiently, I will go through this. I won't falter along the way. I will endure under the circumstances that are theirs, what the term literally means. 
And then when that happens, I will come to the point where I have proven character. God says that's part of the journey of tribulation, which leads to your patient endurance of it so that I can have proven character. The word proven there is used of minerals like gold or silver that are boiled in a pot so the impurities can rise to the surface and you scrape those off so that the final element, once dried and cooled, is a pure version of that which it began with. And God says, I will bring tribulation and perseverance so that I can continue to polish and purify who you are. And when you go through that, then the last thing is that leads to hope that does not disappoint. At the end of the journey, there's hope. At the end of the journey, there's no disappointment that God didn't keep His Word. At the end of the journey, there is no promise from God that will not be fulfilled. So God is saying to you and me, if you're justified, if you're righteous, will you join me on this journey? Where I will allow the pressures of life, the perseverance of your heart, the character polished and purified, so that you can ultimately in the end game see hope of this wonderful life where there is no shame because you followed me. James is similar to that. Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you will be perfect, complete, lacking to nothing. God says, that's what I sent Jesus to do. In your position, you are at peace with God, living in his sphere of grace. But in your journey, it will feel like, where's that peace? It'll feel like. I'm no longer in that sphere of grace. So that's why God gives us this advance notice. These are the qualities of what it means to live as a justified person. And any preacher who preaches anything different than that is a heretic. Because God says, this is what I expect. This is the journey I want to bring you on. This is the hardness of what it means to continue to be a follower of Jesus. And so he then concludes in this way a loving presence where you will feel the presence of the love of God in your life. In verse 5, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given us. God comes to that comfortable place of experiencing love, His love in my heart. He pours it out. The Holy Spirit gives us enablement, empowerment, because I can't do this outside of that. So the justified person has this, this calling, this, this big picture of God at work, where tribulations ultimately in the end of the story brings about hope. There is hope at the end, even though on the journey it doesn't always feel that way. But in that sphere of grace, I held, hold on to that hope of the glory. I hold on to the hope of no disappointment. And I know that the Spirit of God is empowering me along the way. Let, let me illustrate this. I just read this just two days ago of an incident that happened to a youth pastor in Dakula, Georgia. I'd never heard of him before until I read about this in a journal. And the journal tells the story of a fellow by the name of Eric Fitzgerald. Eric Fitzgerald was youth pastor, still is, I believe, youth pastor at the Hebron Baptist Church in Dakula, Georgia. It was little towns in the south. And, uh, you know, just serving the Lord, doing God's work. One of the justified ones, one of the righteous ones. Until a senior pastor came and knocked on his door one day and said, I'm sorry to tell you that your wife June and your little unborn baby have been killed in an automobile accident. And what had happened is this. June was driving one way with her... Uh, in her um, 
and her 19-month-old little baby also in the car seat next to her. And coming the other way was a man by the name of Matthew Swatswell, who was a firefighter. He's 20 years old. He'd been on duty for 24 hours straight and hadn't had hardly but 30 minutes of sleep, he said. And thought to himself, you know, I, I think I can make it home and, and then I'll rest up there rather than taking a nap before I head home. So he gets in a car, very sleepy, and he starts driving down these little two-lane highways that you see a lot of in Georgia. And she's driving one way and he's driving the other way. He falls asleep at the wheel, goes over the center line, crashes head on, kills her, the unborn baby, and the 19-month-old little girl survives. So that's what the senior pastor of Hebron Baptist Church told his youth pastor, Eric. And that began the journey that illustrates what it means to be a righteous person. When tribulations bring me all to this new story that God has now introduced into my life, the big story of God. Eric said one of the reasons he could get through that is this. This is what he said. We have a tendency to look at our lives as little three-by-five snapshots, and we tend to get focused on a three-by-five and ask if it's okay or not. We lose sight of the fact that God is doing bigger things. His story is bigger than ours, that he paints on a canvas the size of the universe. And remembering that God has this plan that he is unpacking and unwielding and, and, and I'm going to yield to, he says, it saved my life. Matthew Swatswell, who is the firefighter who killed his wife, hit rock bottom at that. How could he have done this? You can just imagine that kind of pain as well. And he finally cried out one night and he wrote, That night I said, I'm putting my faith in you, God, that you had a reason for this and that you do have a plan. In that moment, he says, I felt the presence of God in a very unique and powerful way. He said, it was like he placed his hand on my shoulder and wrapped me in a blanket of comfort. And I say, that is the comfort. The Holy Spirit is the great comforter. He comes into our hearts. He pours, as Romans 5, 5 says, he is poured into us where the love of God begins to ease the fallacies and frailties of our lives, as it was the case here. Eric was asked by the district attorney, do you want us to press full charges to bring this man to conviction? And Eric says, no. I'm willing to extend a lot of grace to this man. He prayed for, he prayed for Matthew daily. I mean, I just like, this is just unbelievable to me. And when asked about his decision to not press full charges, Eric said, this would be a wonderful opportunity for God to get glory, for Christ to be lifted up, an opportunity to demonstrate God's forgiveness and God's love. It was a beautiful time when finally they got together, Eric and Matthew. In fact, it happened, for, I'm trying to get through the story quickly, but for two years they could not see each other for legal purposes. The district attorney would not allow for it. The day before the final of the second year, they ran into each other at the hardware store. That was the first time they had seen each other since his wife had been killed, June. And once they saw each other, their lives changed. And this is when he said, It was a beautiful time when we shared about experiencing God's grace, God's healing, the power of forgiveness and restoration. And Eric said he expressed a desire in that hardware store, I'd like to be in your life the rest of your life. 
That was back in 2006 when his wife was killed. And for approximately the next six years, Eric began to disciple Matthew every single day, or once a week, I should say, spending time praying together, encouraging one another. Matthew finally found himself a woman to marry, and they got married, and Eric then became the mentor to help them to have the kind of marriage that they would love to have. And when I read about Eric and what he is saying here, he says this, There's not a day that goes by that I don't wish that June was here with me, but through it all, God has been with me. I am who I am today because of what God has done in me through these circumstances, and for that I am thankful. I would say exult. I rejoice. This is an exceptional case, but it's what the Apostle Paul was describing, that we are exceptional people in the justification that Christ gives to us. It's an example that says, when I put you on this journey, there's a bigger picture I'm trying to draw of tribulation to perseverance to proven character have a spirit of hope and a hope that does not disappoint. And that when I go through these experiences, and hopefully not as tragic as this one, but whatever I go through, what the Apostle Paul wants you and I to understand is that we are the righteous servants of His, that we have been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we have been placed in a position of peace with Him, and we function in His sphere of grace. And that when these things come that intrude into our lives in such tragic and hurtful ways, whether they're small or whether they're great, they still hurt. I want to know that I'm still on this journey with God and that God is still with me because He's He's poured His Holy Spirit in His love into my life so that I can go through a tribulation and have perseverance and have proven character and never doubt that He will give me the hope that will never disappoint. I want to know that whatever I go through, I've got God's great plan unfolding in my life. And justified people, they live in that sweet spot. Doesn't prevent head-on collisions where wives are killed doesn't mean that will happen, but it doesn't prevent all the harm. But the beauty of the glory of God that shines through the story of what Eric and Matthew are expressing here is somewhat what I believe the Apostle Paul had in mind when the Spirit told him, write down these words, of what it's like to journey with me together. And then, how does God help us to become righteous? This is the nuts and the bolts that takes place, and that's following that as well. In fact, here's a picture of uh, Eric when he got married. Yeah, okay, to his wife and June, who is now with the Lord. Here's how people become righteous, and this is so fundamental. In verse 6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice the terms that God uses for us, the problems that we have. Here are the words that God describes outside of His justification. And so people who think they're good enough and somehow, I'm just going to be good enough. I'm going to get to heaven. I'll, it'll all work out. I'm, you know, I'm not all that bad. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Here's what God is saying to us. For while you were still helpless, word number one, we are helpless outside of Jesus Christ. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We are ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone might <clears throat> dare to even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, we miss the mark of Jesus Christ's holiness. We miss it. Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. People outside of Jesus' justification are under God's wrath. 
For if while we were still enemies, we're enemies. We're enemies. Outside of Jesus' justification and outside of being in the righteousness of God, I'm an enemy of God. I'm not just sort of a quasi-believer and spiritually minded and I'm just sort of okay. Oh, I'm his enemy. I'm either, I'm either in righteousness or I'm his enemy. There, there, are, there is no other list. There's no other column. There's no other classification. I'm either an enemy or I'm righteous. And that's the way God spells it out through Paul. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by His life. How do I become justified or righteous? I need to admit that I am helpless. I'm ungodly. I'm a sinner. I'm under God's wrath. I'm His enemy. Anything less than that is just sort of a spin job. It's a false identity. It's a false understanding of how God describes those who need Jesus. That's why God looks at this earth and He looks at people like you and me outside of Jesus and says, you desperately need what I have to offer to you. Because a helpless, ungodly sinner who is under God's wrath, enemy of God, can never do enough to gain the favor of God's righteousness in their own. They are helpless. They are weak. It's sometimes translated feeble. They are faint-hearted in 1 Thessalonians 5. That's the, the kind of life that we have before Jesus. So I admit, yeah, that's me. What am I going to do about it? How do I get out of that? God says, here's the good news. You need to know that I'm seeking you even in your helpless, sinful condition. As Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we're yet sinners. He didn't wait for me to get better. He didn't wait for me to go to church. He didn't wait for me to give a big check to the church. He didn't wait for me to go uh, volunteer my services at charity causes. He didn't do anything that says that, yeah, I think that uh, this Dave Mitchell, uh, he looks like he's kind of cleaning up his life and uh, somebody that I should probably reach out to and maybe save. No, he saw me in the depths of my helpless, sinful, ungodly enemy status and said, Jesus died for you, Dave. And it's a demonstration of how much I love you. I don't wait for you to get it right. I do it for you. I make you right. And then secondly, he says this, Christ died for us to remove our sin, declare us righteous, and save us from God's wrath. As it says in verses 8 and 9, Christ died for us. He died in my place. He took my place on the cross. He was my substitute so that He could forgive me. He took the penalty of my sin on Him, much more than having been justified, declared righteous by His blood. His blood on that cross is the payment of my sin. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. I am no longer under His wrath when I am in righteousness. His wrath is no longer something I experience. There is therefore now no condemnation to those in Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 There is no wrath on anybody who is righteous. You don't have to worry about the angry God. We are living in His grace, His sphere of grace. That's a beautiful place to be. And then I need to have faith in this solution that God has changed me. The word reconciled in verses 10 and 11 for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, we were changed from an enemy. The word reconciled means to change. We were changed from an enemy through the death of His Son. Much more having been reconciled, changed, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult, rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received the reconciliation or the change. God changes us. It's a transformation of life. We are no longer that person who is helpless, ungodly, sinner, under God's wrath, and enemy. We are not that person. That is not us. Don't let the enemy tell you that's who you are. 
That is not me. I am a different person. I am, I am transformed by the power of God. Like water to wine, I have been changed by the power of God, and I am now righteous. I live in His sphere of grace. I have peace with Him. Even when I mess up, I have peace with God, and I live in the sphere of His grace. He's so abounding in loving kindness and compassion. He loves to forgive. He is eager to forgive. He welcomes me back. He doesn't hold grudges. He separates me from all sin. I love to live in the righteousness of God because no matter what comes my way, I know I'm on that journey of tribulation, perseverance, proven character, and hope that I'll never be disappointed in. That's a great place to live. And we have so many family and friends who are not living there and have such a terrible misconception of all that God came to do for us. And this is what God came to do for us. Not get the bigger home. It may happen. Not get the better job. It may happen. Not have perfect health or perfect teeth. It may happen. If you can afford braces. These things may happen. But that's not what Jesus came to do. This is what Jesus came to do. Now the last portion of this passage, I'm not going to be able to read for the sake of time, but I know that you can read it. But I want to summarize it in this way. One of the things that then Paul the Apostle does is, now let me, let me illustrate the change. He says, there is Adam, the first man, literally a man, and then there is the second Adam, as he would call him later, who is Christ. We have two columns that Paul then describes. In Adam, I am this way. In Christ, I am this way. And here's just some of the comparisons. In Adam, as he talks about it there, I remain in sin and death. That's where I live. If I'm still in Adam, that's, that's my lot. But in Christ, I receive the free gift of God's grace, which abounds. That's what he says here in Romans uh, 5, 12 through 21. In Adam, sin rules over my life. Why can I never get over this thing? Why is this always controlling me? Why is this always a problem for me? Why is there such repetition of these things? Well, sin rules over my life when I'm in Adam. But when I move over to Christ, he declares me righteous. Therefore, he sets me free. It is no longer part of my life. God is cleansing me. Proven character. He's purifying me through tribulation and perseverance. In Adam, I live under God's condemnation. And I would say to anybody who's not accepted Christ as their Savior, why would you want to live there when Jesus came so that I can have abundance of grace and actually desire God's righteousness? Why do some people not want to desire God's righteousness? Because they're probably still living in Adam. But when you come over to change, when he reconciles us, we're changed to, to righteousness and desire that. In Adam, I find success. I cannot find success in keeping God's law. You'll never be able to measure up. Never keep, you'll never be good enough. No one's ever good enough. I do it on their own. But God's grace in Christ sets me free from the power of the law of my sin. I don't have to worry about that. I just live it out. I live it out by the Holy Spirit who's poured out in me. I have no assurance of heaven when I'm in Adam. Because I'm always a sinner. I'm always helpless. I'm always an enemy. I'm always under God's wrath. Uh, I'm always ungodly. I'm helpless. But when I come to Christ, when we're changed, we're moved over to the column of Christ. God's gift of grace and righteousness assures me of eternal life in heaven. That's the change. And now, the question is this. If you're in Adam's list, I would ask, why would you want to remain there? I will remain there if I do nothing. I will always be there. Why not put my trust in Jesus, move over to the column of Christ and His redemptive 
powerful, righteous work that frees me from the encumbrance of sin and destruction and pain outside of the sphere of God's grace, moves me into the sphere of God's grace by putting my faith in the Christ that died for my sins, buried, rose again, so I can have hope of the glory of Christ the day I die. Why wouldn't I want to be there? Which column are you in? And I encourage you, by faith, to come to Christ and let Him finish for you what He's finished for a lot of us in this room. And we don't brag about it because we're humbled. We admit it. We're helpless. I can't do it. Let Jesus do for you what you'll never do for yourself by trusting in Him. Now, I'd like to illustrate this with two things. I'd like to use as an object lesson that explains in symbolism the reality that what God wants to do. Each of you who received a bulletin has a little white piece of paper like this. I encourage you to take that in your hand at this time. If you don't have one, there's some bulletins in the back there. Um, and what I'd like for you to do is to think about, am I in Adam or am I in Christ? Are there still things that God wants to polish up in my life? Are there sins that I'm still carrying in my life that I need to bring to Jesus and let Him just clean up the little stuff, the big stuff, whatever it happens to be? And write on that little piece of paper, those sins that you have had in your past, and I'm going to write one that I know that is a reality of undergirding of all sinful thing in my life. And just write on there those things that you're asking God to forgive you of. And then we want to symbolize that when you ask for His forgiveness, He will declare you righteous. And He'll take that sin and take that in a symbolic way, piece of paper, you drop it in here, you take the little stick, and you stir it around, and it's gone. I mean, it is gone. You can't see it. You can't bring it back. You can't stick it back in your pocket. It is gone. And when God comes and Jesus Christ sheds His blood to forgive us of our sins, to justify us in His righteousness, my past, my sins, that baggage, those memories, God says, I want to legally declare you righteous and let you know I no longer remember. As is invisible as it is here, I no longer remember it either. Welcome home. Live in my sphere of grace. You have peace with me. Let's go on this journey together as I pour out my Holy Spirit and demonstrate my love for you. So symbolize it by dropping that in there and then come over and we got the cup and the bread. It symbolizes the blood and body of Jesus. It symbolizes that justification act on that cross where His blood and His body was crucified to cleanse me of all sins. So these two acts are symbols of justification completed. If it's true for you, as we worship, come up and express that and tangibly watch as you see what God sees when sins are completely eliminated. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you that you're a mighty God that is so gracious to me and to all of us in this room. None of us are any more special than the other. So we all come humbly seeking your forgiveness, seeking your cleansing, seeking your righteousness. Because, God, you demonstrated your love for us even while we were still sinners. 
even those of us who are sitting here right now who are still sinners, you demonstrated your love by offering your Son Jesus to die for us. Thank you. Let us go out of this room when the time comes, living in the sphere of your grace and at peace with you, Almighty God. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.